Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. Hey there, Karma crew. So glad you're joining me for another episode of Mind Your Own Karma, the Adoption Chronicles. And as promised, I have another adoptee story for you today. Emily Albert is a 40-year-old domestic infant adoptee from Grosse Point, Michigan, born outside of Chicago, Illinois. Emily identifies as multiply neurodivergent and has special interests in writing, composing music, creating art, and learning about psychology. These interests have each played a major role in her evolution as a human being and as an adopted person learning to embrace her own identity as a creative. She recently started a blog on Substack called Out of the Fog and uses that space to articulate her experiences in relation to separation from her natural mother and how adoption has impacted her life. Here is Emily Albers' adoption story. So we're welcoming Emily to Mind Your Own Karma today. Hi, Emily. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be great conversation. So let's just jump right in. And why don't you tell us why your parents adopted you? What were the circumstances? Infertility. So my mom couldn't have children or she was really struggling to have children. And my aunt wasn't able to have children at all who was older than her. So she, I think, kind of started making the assumption that that was just going to be a problem for Mm -hmm. her as well. So she and my father, I think they were in their late 20s when this started, when they'd started the whole application process for adoption, um, but found out that my dad was too old for Catholic social services. Wow. So they took an alternate, alternate route. I didn't know Catholic services had an age uh, limit. <laughs> they were in their 20s. They were in their late 20s. My my dad may have been in his early 30s. So wow, that's the story my parents have told me. Wow. So I was reading an article that you wrote and you said that you found out that you were adopted at four years old. Do you remember that conversation? No, I don't have any recollection, but I've asked questions all throughout the course of my life to my parents, um, sometimes multiple times, just because you know how that is with adoptees, we, those pieces of information are like gold to us. Yeah. So I think I sometimes needed to hear it more than one time. And it's not that I wanted to see if the story changed. It's just to see how I processed it differently as an adult Mm -hmm. versus when I may have heard that when I asked as a teenager, like, well, when did you tell me? My mom was pregnant with my sister. So she ended up getting pregnant with two Mm -hmm. of her own children um, using fertility intervention. So I asked her, were you this fat when I was in your tummy? And she was like, well, not all babies come through mommy's tummy. And I don't obviously have any memory of like what else happened after that. Mm -hmm. But something that came up recently for me that I've had to start processing was I always thought this was funny, like something that I thought was funny, but then I out into the blue realized like how not funny this is and actually how messed up. Um, no one explained to me that I was born and then no one clarified like the father situation. So I have a memory of arguing with my dad 
after 10 years old. So I think anywhere between 10 and 13, where I was like, you have to know who my biological mother is. Like you had a baby with her. And so it just Uh, occurred to me, I didn't know that my dad wasn't my dad until I was between 10 and 13 years old. And I don't even know that sunk in. And honestly, I just turned 40 and it just sunk in. And I'm like, what was going on in my mind? And no wonder I was so like moody and like weird after that conversation. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So how did you feel once you kind of, you know, when you, when it was sinking in that you were adopted, how did that play out in your childhood? And as teenager, did you, did you see um, areas looking back where adoption affected anything in your childhood? 1000%. Yeah. Well, my parents also got a divorce. So that was like really hard. And um, my dad brought a woman into our lives that I don't, I do not get along with. So that was something that I think people wanted to latch on to that. I was struggling with this stepmom situation when in reality, it was more about my adoption issues and like repeat abandonment. And I was very moody and I started having really bad stomach problems, like stomach pain. Mm -hmm. There was a number of times that I went to the hospital because I was having abdominal pain. That was really bad. I was accused of being a hypochondriac, like a bunch of times. And I'll never forget. There was one nurse and I've, this is something I've latched onto just to preserve my sanity. She, she said, no, there's like abnormal bleeding just a little bit. And she was like, I don't think that we should let this go. And then it turned out to manifest um, into having endometriosis and PCOS and all of this other stuff that I would go on to struggle with. But I do think that the stress had manifested so badly that it was causing a lot of these issues earlier on. Yeah. Yeah. How did it affect relationships? Like as a teenager, did you date? Mm -hmm. How did that work out? Well, I was really quiet. I was also undiagnosed autistic. So I've, um, what people I think are more familiar with the term Asperger's, but that's not a thing anymore. Um, and I also have ADHD and that's what I think was presenting itself at the time. That's all that kind of had come up aside from PTSD and trauma from the separation issue. But I was told by other people that I was really quiet in the beginning of high school, which is strange because I am not a quiet person, like non-compliant adoptee, just like super, you know, intense, but I always went for the bad boys and I started drinking early and that happened after I met my biological mother. But the relationship stuff that was the hardest for me was the stuff that was going on at home after the divorce. This is my belief that my brother, who's just a year and a half younger than me, he's biological. He um, was really hurt by my parents' divorce, like very badly, like drawing pictures bad, you know, and Mm -hmm. I feel like he took that out on me a lot. And so there were times where I heard no one loves you. No one wants you shut up. You're annoying. You're this, you're that you're fat. You're ugly. You can't play with us. You're adopted. Wow. And there's one time that is like forever burned into my brain that I went downstairs 
to like the family computer, how it was back then, mm-hmm. late nineties um, or early two thousands. It was like, you know, the computer was in the basement and my brother had left AOL instant messenger open. And there was an away message that said out with my real sisters. And then he named my sister and one of her friends and left it out for me to see. And I was devastated and I have a very toxic family system. And so I recognized that my brother was in the same toxic family system as I'm in, but there's this recollection of my behavioral problems, but not of that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's something that's persisted. I mean, this has never stopped since childhood. (laughs) The Um, ongoing adoptee saga. I know. So then in that article, also, you referred to your adoption as a fraudulent baby broker adoption. So what happened? What were the circumstances with that? So course of advertising, um, my biological mother ended up when she was 19 years old, going from North Dakota to Chicago. She was threatened. She was, you know, made it impossible for her to back out of anything that she had gotten herself into. It was just a really scary situation. And there was an ongoing case against Easter house, which is more of a law firm than an agency Mm. that I don't think they were licensed when I was adopted. Um, There was no home study and my parents handed over what would be the equivalent now of a hundred thousand dollars in cash to a person representing this lawyer, Seymour Kurtz at the Dearborn Hyatt in Michigan. So like right kind of as you'd be going out of town to go from Michigan to Illinois it was, you know, white babies for sale in the eighties was like a big deal. That's like, that was a thing is mm. this big, it was like a, I see it everywhere. It was just like the people were making insane amounts of money off of marketing white babies to wealthier families. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so did you meet your biological family then? It sounds like you did. Why don't you tell us about how that came about? It sounds like it happened early, like in your teens? I was 15. And I guess to circle back to AOL instant messenger, found my biological mom on AOL people search by actually finding somebody totally separate. And she, it ended up, I was just asking questions about North Dakota and it all like kind of came together. And the random person I asked this question to worked for my grandmother. And by the end of the day, I was like on the phone with them. It was the most intense thing of all time. How did you know your mom's name? So after I was born, I think it was about six months. Uh, my biological mother called my parents' house and she had made friends with somebody to get this information. And my mom answered and she just said, hi, you know, I'm, I'm Dawn. And I, um, I gave birth to Emily and I just wanted to know if she was okay. And she told me that she was like, remembers that very clearly and remembers my mom being really nice. And that she was like, I think I would have like hurt myself just if I wouldn't have known where you were and what was going on, that's how like traumatizing, you know, this stuff for everyone. Mm -hmm. And my mom remembers this. She's like, she had the softest voice and she's like, and I just commend her for doing that. That took a lot of courage. And Dawn feels like that scared my mom and it just, it didn't. So 
Yeah. I'm surprised your mom reacted that way. I think my mom would have been like feeling threatened. Like, are you coming right. back to get her? Like, uh-huh. my mom's not like, doesn't really fit the profile from like what most adoptees who are involved in the community talk about. Mm. And she's really kind of like, she's one of the most kind people I know. Mm. And she's here for me forever. And yeah. that's important. Yeah. I know my mom is too. She's one of my best friends. Um, so what about your dad? Did you meet him, find him? I did. And that was a rough one. Um, that didn't happen until my later thirties. I took a DNA test because my biological mom didn't, she didn't know who he was. She actually had his last name incorrect. I mean, they were teenagers, so it's not to me, that's not like that weird, but so I get the DNA test back and I was actually more just wondering about my heritage. And I knew all of this stuff about my biological mother's side, but nothing about the other side, kind of with the genetic mirroring piece. It's like, I think I wanted to see what cultural situation I was coming from just so I could see myself better. Yeah. That's, you know, I was grasping for straws with like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like, I thought I was weird looking and like a different, strange looking person, like for my entire life. Mm. And I didn't know how to explain that, but my face just did not sit right with me forever. I was just like, what is going like, you have such a strange look. I thought it was, I didn't look like anyone in my community. And then I realized it was like my family and that yeah. I'm taller than everyone. My bone structure is larger than everyone. Uh, my smiles somewhat a little bit similar. We all have dark hair and dark eyes, so it kind of fits in, but that was kind of a crisis for me. Um, so that's why I took the test. I ended up being linked to the Chesley family, which isn't my biological father's family because my grandfather was adopted. So it was like that double adoption situation. Mm. And so it made things a little bit tricky, but there's um, my cousin, Kimberly, she is this major, you know, genealogy fanatic. So she had put together this massive family tree and we were like, okay, we have to figure out like where you fit. Yeah. And so we're trying and I'm, and I'm like, I think it could be this guy. And she's like, it can't be because in around when you were born, he was in jail. And I was like, okay, there's like nobody else that this could be on this test. Like literally I'm like, and his brother was dead before they were just the two boys. And so I was like, it has to be him. If his brother passed away in 81 and, you know, I'm having this conversation out loud and like not knowing anything's going on. And then finally, actually a couple of years later, somebody took a test and I matched with his mother's side. So it became clear that that was my father. And I was like, somebody totally different. No, it was the, the guy that I was talking about where they were like, oh. it couldn't be him. He was in jail. And I was like, okay. huh? And so I then came to find out that he killed his brother. Mm. And then it, but with all the court documents, I guess it's manslaughter. People in the family don't see it that way. I don't know what to believe. Cause I've heard some stories from him that are pretty traumatizing yeah, that was really hard. Learning that was really hard. And um, something also that just hit me recently as I 
I keep saying he killed his brother, not my uncle. Like, I know that doesn't sound like a big deal, maybe to other people outside of our community, they would be like, well, you know, not really because you're in family or whatever, but it's hard for me to always wrap my mind around the relationship of these people. And he actually still, I don't think he sees me. I think he sees me as his kid and that I'm not a part of that family, which is fine by me Mm. (laughs) in that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was rough. Yeah. So how, I mean, that is your dad. Was he in jail when you're, I mean, oh, okay. that happened like right before or what? No, he was, um, because there was cocaine and alcohol involved. He was in a rehab facility and that's where he met my biological mother and they hooked up in her car. Uh, okay. Then there's me. Yeah. <laughs> So what relationship do you have with your biological family now? My biological mom, um, I don't know if this would hurt her to hear this, but she feels like a big sister to me. Mm -hmm. Totally get that. I was adopted by boomers and she's a gen gen X. I almost said gen Z. (laughs) (laughs) She's, She's gen X and my parents are boomers. And so is my grandma. So my grandma was like teen mom. She was kind of too. So it's this weird shift where like my grandmother is closer in age to my dad, my adoptive father than my biological mom. So she and I are both, I mean, it's creepy. I'm one of those situations where it's just like, whoa, like I'm like her mini me. Wow. Yeah. That's so weird. Especially like when you were saying you grow up not having anything mirrored like that. And then you, it's like looking in the mirror. I believe it prevented me from discovering crucial parts of my identity, not knowing a lot about what was going on with her because she and I are so similar and have so many similar tendencies and interests and just all of this stuff. So I feel like I'm like a late discovery person and <laughs> for myself, like, you know, <laughs> uh, how I am now is nowhere close to how I was when I was still in the fog. Yeah. Well, like you were saying, even those little nuances, like you were talking about your uncle and you don't call him your uncle. It's just those little things that are huge to us. And, you know, like you don't realize it till, you know, that you were doing that It's yeah. just things that other people just kind of take for granted. And we have to struggle with, with the relationship with your uh, birth mother. I kind of felt the same way. I felt like my birth mother was like a cool aunt or a cousin or, you know, something like that. Um, because we were so much alike, we looked alike. Uh, we had like the same uh, inflections in our voice or like even movements and stuff, even the way we laughed. Yeah. We kind of laughed the same, you know? So it was kind of like, Oh, it was kind of like having a best friend relative though, you know? Yeah. To, to me. I totally get it. Yeah. So what about your dad? Are you, you're still in contact with him and what? Um, I've backed off a little. He kind of freaks me out and he, believes like all of this crazy stuff that's happened in his life with, you know, his brother and his family that like Jesus has saved everybody. So I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to criticize your belief system, but he tries to impress that on me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I wrote in my journal, which I didn't see until recently from my first trip that 
I said from my first visit with him, did he care more about me or like converting me or mm, saving me or jamming the Bible down my throat? Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. it, it was really hard. Yeah. The trip was rough. Ugh. Montana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So you did say though, in that article that your biological father made you feel seen. Yes. What did you mean by that? Um, I have a lot of issues, physical, mental health, all of that stuff. And to see where it's coming from and to just be able to freely talk about invisible illness and Mm -hmm. not have people say, I don't get it or judge you. Like I've been judged my entire life was like actually a very incredible experience. And it made me stop wondering, like, where is this coming from? Why is this happening to me? You know, the mystery medical history. Mm-hmm. I was going to the doctor 8 billion times. Something was always wrong with me. Always trying some new experimental stuff. Always, you know, mixing it up with medication or, you know, whatever. And doctors being like, what the hell? And then I end up learning a lot from him. Um, more from observing him than him actually he's he's told me some stuff about the physical but I've observed mental health issues in him that I don't think he's aware things that were passed down to you maybe I think he copes with mental illness uh, with a religion Mm. so I think he thinks you know mental health episodes are like the devil trying to take him down or yeah I don't know. It's hard for me because I'm very into psychology because I felt like I had to be, you know, at a young age. Um, So I can clearly see things, but I also don't want to make like harmful assumptions and, you know, label him as anything that he may not be. Right. How is your relationship with your adoptive siblings then? Did that ever heal or? So I don't know about the adoptive sibling situation. Oh, the adoptive siblings. Sorry. (laughs) I'm like, wait, did I talk about my biological siblings? Um, no, I'm estranged. And it's been that way for about two and a half years. It's the most painful thing I've ever gone through in my entire life. There are nieces and nephew involved. No one's interested in communicating. And Mm. I'm talking about like, there's just no family communication. There's like a ton of gaslighting going on. There's a ton of you know, just assumptions being made and people not being kind or compassionate. And it's honestly been one of the most soul crushing experiences I've ever had. But the space that I have had has helped me see so much that I've needed to see about myself and my family. So I I hope that we can reconcile one day. That would be that would yeah. be the dream. Yeah. So you guys don't do holidays like at your parents all together. Oh no, they did behind my back. Oh, <laughs> at my wow. dad. And I went to my dad's office and saw uh we're like the Detroit Athletic Club is this huge, like kind of family deal every year for us for the holidays. And there's a portrait every year. And I walked into my dad's office to have coffee with him, and there was all of the the two new babies that I don't even know, like all of these, pe- my family in this portrait. And I just was like, oh my God, like you couldn't even tell me that that was going on. Wow. How hurtful. I, I would understand. Well, and it's because I'm the, I'm the one that I initiated the estrangement. I believe my siblings like to believe that this is their doing, but it happened when I found out that I didn't know my actual birthday. Oh my, um, my biological mom was like, 
you know, something I haven't told you your whole life. Cause I was like worried it was just going to really hurt you. And this was during the pandemic and I just collapsed. I had my first major depressive episode and, um, so wait back up here. <laughs> How I know. did you not so much? <laughs> How, what happened with the birthday thing? Okay. The birthday thing is, is it's not unbelievable. I talked to a family, a lawyer in Cook County in Illinois, which is where this occurred. The baby broker had the girls give birth at a hospital in his hometown in Skokie, mm-hmm. Illinois, not in Chicago where they were living, which I think is so sketchy. So I talked to this lawyer and I was telling him the whole situation. And he was like, the eighties were like, you know, a hot mess. And just, there wasn't the internet, the technology was different. People could change that, you know, documentation of things was just not as closely monitored. And um, so it's possible that they tried to close the gap on her to not be able to change her mind by changing my birthday by a few days, but also birth moms are really traumatized and their trauma can cause amnesia. So I don't even know what's true. And it has been really disruptive every year. It's like, I feel like my brain goes completely sideways around my birthday. There's no um, hospital records to look up. Um, I've tried the just like it seems like every place that any of us seem to look have like either at a flood or burned down or like, you know, yeah. So it's just like, what the hell insurance yeah. rates must be insane at this point then for right. agencies, if you're all burning down <laughs> and flooding, I know I just am trying to let it go and mm. just go with the birthday that I know just to like, keep it moving because I have too many problems otherwise. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So you, we brought up the biological siblings for a second. So how many biological siblings do you have? And so are you in contact with them? Um, yeah, one brother and I, I have more than that, but he's the only one I'm in touch with and he is the nicest human being. And he is in North Dakota with my biological mom and my other brother from her is kind of out of the picture. And then there's not really a clear understanding with my biological father. He believes that he had a daughter before me, but I don't know. There is also a boy, I guess. It's really scary. It's That situation is really, I don't know how to explain it. It could literally be a movie. Situation is like, it's scary. It's like off the grid, like weird people praying over me in tongues when I'm visiting kind of crap. Oh my gosh. So like, you know, they grew up in this, this town of less than 1000 people. And it just doesn't seem like their social structure or rules were as composed as how they were all over the place. I don't honestly, I don't know what's real with him. So you didn't come up with anything in your DNA about that side of our siblings. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So let's talk about the fog. And you said that you came out of the fog, but you know, it kind of sounds like it's layers. <laughs> There's layers of fog that you're coming out of um, and still coming out of. So you want to talk about that for a second? Yes. The um kind of precipitating event in my mind seems to change sometimes. I don't know if that 
would resonate with people. But I think the more I learn and the more I come out of the fog, the more I realize I was starting to come out of the fog, maybe earlier than I thought. I had this event. I was leaving North Dakota and I was going to my boyfriend's house at the time in Salt Lake. And I pulled into his driveway and I called my sister to tell her that I found out my biological father like killed his brother and I was devastated. And she goes, why can't you just be grateful for what you have, Emily? And I was like, "Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) and I lost it. I lost it. And this poor guy that I was seeing our holidays just were not fun. <laughs> it was like, because it was just, I was searching for my biological father. I was doing all this stuff. So it was just becoming clear to me just how like screwed up things were. Mm. And that my biological mother had called me and was like, I heard you were looking for your biological father. And what do you know? And she like knew about this. And it was like, then I realized I wasn't totally told everything. And then everything just started to get strange. And then I left the relationship that I was in and we were, we went, we went to the ring store and we were like talking about getting married and having children. And I'd had a, I think laparoscopic, whatever, Blake's laparoscopy. Yeah. The whole thing with the endometriosis and stuff. So I can Mm -hmm. have a kid. I remember that. And then he was like, we can't do that until you move back to Salt Lake and you're here permanently. And I was like, okay. And so I went back and it was just evident to me that I didn't know what was going on in my life. I had no idea, like all of these things just kept popping into my brain. It was scary. It was dysregulating. I had undiagnosed mental health issues. I had premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which I was trying to, we were trying to escalate getting married to have kids so I could have my uterus removed Mm. and my ovaries removed so I could have some mental health relief. And it was a mess. It, it, it became totally chaotic. So looking back, you know, I've apologized to Andrew and I, it's a very sore subject for me, that relationship, because I feel like that was like the only time that I was prepared to have children with someone Mm. and to get married to somebody. And, um, I can't have children now. And I, don't have any. So it's hard to look back on because I made all of these choices after that to, you know, to figure out who I am and to work through my trauma instead of staying in that relationship. And in some ways, I feel like I sabotaged everything with him because I thought he would leave me if he like Mm. continued to experience that chaos. And I felt like he deserved better. And I may not have said things at the time that would lead him to believe that, but that is how I felt. And it was heartbreaking. It was gut-wrenching. Leaving that house was so sad and it did not go down well ultimately. But so things after that just started to kind of unfold. And I started learning more about the truth about my adoption and some really messed up things that went on. And, um, I was listening actually to think that that was my coming out of the fog and that there were maybe a couple of other events. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, I'm out of the fog. Like I know what's going on. I'm going to be writing in my blog and like talking about adoption. And then I go and listen to your podcast just to like get familiar with the whole thing. And Greg Gentry said, foster care 
about being an observational period. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And it came crashing down. Like I have literally been a mess for days over this. And it was like, I started realizing that was the one piece that I didn't know. Why was I in foster care for three and a half weeks? Like, why was I there? If my parents wanted me so bad and they were waiting for me and I had been delivered and they knew about me, why didn't they just come get me? Yeah. And so I heard that and I can't believe, and again, not something people outside of the adopted community would understand why that's a big deal to feel like a commodity like that is disgusting. Yeah. It's traumatizing. And I had therapy last night and I told my therapist and she was like, you know, this like one abandonment after another is like, of course, going to cause attachment problems. Mm -hmm. So then my mom tells me, well, now this makes sense. Like you used to be so wild when I would try to put you down for naps. And as a child, like I was not having it. Like I was not okay with her putting me down for naps. And I was like, I probably thought you were going to leave me. And then it clicked. Yes. I think last night or maybe a little before I was like, wait a second. Like I can't take naps. Like I cannot, mm. I try and I have like, I can fall asleep sometimes, but like in terms of being like a person who can just close their eyes and take a nap or like, right, you know, it's a chore for me. I have like electricity going through my body. It yeah. feels like when I try to take naps and there have been times that I've woke up having nightmares and dreams about my mom dying. Mm. And I'm like, is this really that connected? <laughs> like, right. is that even possible? And you know, I'm reading a lot right now in a book club about epigenetics and it's just like stuff's just so intense. I don't think people, if we aren't even aware of how insidious and awful this trauma was, we can't remember what happened. Yeah. How are you supposed to heal from this? Right. And of course people are just going to minimize it because they don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Super uncomfortable subject. And People just don't want to have these hard conversations. <laughs> or they think it's unnecessary and just like, why can't you just move on? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I have to yeah. go through this. So you can think right. I'm a downer, crazy nightmare all you want, but I have to get to the other end of this myself. Right. Yeah. So true. So you said that your adoptive parents are on the adoption journey with you. What do you mean by that? Um, they have really, my mom has like kind of created a space for me where I can talk about anything that's adoption related. Same with my dad. And nobody is saying that didn't happen to you. No one's saying this isn't real. No one is saying, you know, whatever. I think they feel bad because they didn't believe me about like a ton of things for a long time. And now mm. it's becoming obvious that I have these problems. So they're just trying to help me get through this as much as they can. And my adoptive father lost his mother when he was an infant. And um, I was like, you realize like you have the primal wound also his brother's adopted. And all of a sudden it was like, probably because I made it about him. He cared, <laughs> but still, <laughs> it was like, so blocking yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. What helps you cope with 
your physical and mental struggles? What's worked for you? Because I always see like therapy and stuff works, but then um, a lot of people seek other mm -hmm. um, more non-traditional therapies too that seem to help adopt trauma. So what it, what helps you? What have you found? Uh, myofascial release massage is really helpful for me. Um, oh my God, that's so painful. I, love I almost it. died having that done. I love it. <laughs> oh, I sweat. It's hurt so bad. I'm I just... found an adoptee uh, myofascial release specialist in Cody, Wyoming, when I was living oh there God. briefly. And um, we had the best sessions ever. And she was like, I can see like you had some birthing trauma around your neck. And I'm like, oh, you have to go with John F. Barnes trained myofascial release specialists. They're the ones that can like tap your energy into like moving around your body instead of being trapped. Um, he's kind of like the godfather of that practice. Yeah. I didn't, I did not feel any release. Okay. I, like I was tightening more. <laughs> uh, and I even told her, cause I, I can handle pain. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, you know, and I had to like cry uncle. I was like, that's really <laughs> hurting. And she's like, well, you can cuss if you want to. I'm like, no, I'm telling you to stop. <laughs> You're like, no, I, I'm just saying, don't do it anymore. I'm going to punch you right now. <laughs> So, anyway, so that helped you and <laughs> um what else writing um i have a substack blog that's called out of the fog and it is pretty depressing but it's where i like to make my mental connections about all of this stuff and i love to write so that i am getting back into composing what i would call contemporary classical music which i started doing when i was very young cool and my art, which is like my just life line. And I've made a couple of pieces that are about adoption that I think you can really tell that they are probably everything is, but you can see in a couple of my pieces, I think what I'm doing and it's all subconscious. I'm like a, an artist that really is more about the process than about the outcome. So I just don't ever go into anything with a plan commissions are really hard for me and that's what I do for my job. So I often take like, end up running through like way too many supplies and too much canvas to like get to the point. But you know, people saying, I like this color and I like this color. And I'm like, yeah, start the painting. And I'm like, that's not what it is in its best interest mm -hmm. <laughs> like I'm not doing it. <laughs> yep. I used to make wedding cakes and the same thing. Like they'd say, I want this and that. And then you start putting it together and you're like, that's not going to look good. No. I stopped doing it. Like I could, I, <laughs> too much stress. It's like, I can't make that look good. You know, you're not going to be happy with it. I was so. thinking about doing um, a show at some point with adoptee kind of artwork. Yeah, that and, would be cool. Yeah, just to show. I mean, this stuff's dark. It's like my biological mother tells me that my work's disturbing all the time, but that's me. And I, I can't, I can't take that away from myself. If I want to do stuff that might be disturbing to other people or look disturbing to other people, then so what? Yeah. I'm done living for others. <laughs> it's over. Yeah. yeah. So do you sell like prints of these or can we see them somewhere? Do you have them? Yeah. On Instagram at Emily Albert art. And then I don't have my Etsy store open right now where I did have a couple of prints. They were more like I had a Ruth Bader Ginsburg tribute print kind of 
go pretty big in 2020. And so I just used that platform for, for sales for that, but um, I'm working on a website slowly, but surely. And um, I think I need to get through the commissions that I have before I can start making art for me again and to Mm. start, you know, opening that kind of thing up. And, but my Instagram for right now is probably just the best way to look at what I'm doing. I'm also on Facebook at Emily Albert art. Is anything for sale? Um, everything's for sale. That's not listed as a commission. I'll sell whatever. And I really believe my art is meant to just art in general is meant to be shared and not, I don't need to hoard my own art, even though I love some of it. (laughs) Other people do experience that too. And what about your blog? Is that public? Yeah. Anyone can read that. It's So we'll put all those links in the show notes make sure you get those to me so we can put them in there. So... You say you are a multi-neurodivergent adoptee, and I've never heard of that before. Can you tell me what that is? Well, it's multiply neurodivergent is the term and multiple neurodiversities, although I don't think that really makes sense because you're just neurodiverse, which I noticed a lot of adoptees identify as neurodivergent um, or neurodiverse, whichever term they choose to use. But multiply neurodivergent means that I have a number of things going on, ADHD, autism. Um, I have bipolar, which is a new um, diagnosis and hilarious that it was a shock to me and nobody else. (laughs) And and, um, then um, I have OCD and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And so those are some major neurodiversities and some pretty challenging things to live with. I'm a highly sensitive person. And so medications don't really work for me. So I'm on very low dose medications and I have to work at self-regulating and being mindful. And it's like every day is a chore to get through with this kind of brain, but I'm not giving up hope. I recently, recently started taking lithium, which changed my life. And I'm on a very low dose, but it is lithium, sobriety, and artwork. I always say like, those are the things that are really getting me through right now. Yeah. And how important is it for you to have that support system? Not only like the adoptee support system, but even outside of adoptees, it sounds like you have some friends that are there through thick and thin. So how important is that for you? Well, for somebody like me who has... I hate how stigmatized mental health problems are and how stigmatized trauma is. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a really solid like group there. It's actually less of a group and some of them are friends with each other, but I have quite a few girlfriends and guy friends in Michigan where I am. And I'm very open about what goes on in my life. Just to be clear, like, this is who I am and this is what's going on. If you want to stick around, stick around. If you don't, then get the fuck out of my life. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so I have friends that are in no community and are just awesome friends that I have and would drop anything to have breakfast with me if I'm feeling down or whatever, because a lot of people I think can relate to either a family member having an issue that they love, or if they have issues that they're unaware of and they just feel like it's relatable. I don't know. But this recovery community has very quickly become a 7am meetings for me. I have to do it. That puts my brain right on track. I have a sponsor who has said to me, you're going to have to fire me in order (laughs) 
for me to leave you. Wow. She's very aware of my like abandonment sensitivities and she has never once minimized the, the traumas or anything or like, she doesn't say stuff like, why don't you think about it this way? Or why don't you know, she's really like, girl, this is some heavy shit. (laughs) And like, I, and, but she's, and she just, but in a good way, you know what I mean? Who says that to adoptees? We don't hear that. Like people don't sympathize with it. They don't. That's all you have to say. Really? all you have to say is damn that sucks I mean yeah you know, I didn't I've never thought of it that way or whatever but people get so uncomfortable and they just shut down but that's cool it is it's cool to have friends like that so lastly what would you tell struggling adoptees what do you want them to know well um I think I said in that article that I wrote, like, if I can do this, you can do this too. I have a lot of problems and I'm not minimizing anyone else's issues. I'm just saying that if you have issues and you're struggling, there is a way through. It is just very complicated, abstract, and in not going to be clear to you how you're going to make your way through. But the one day at a time mentality has become crucial for me. Acceptance that, you know, this is one of the steps is acceptance and admitting powerlessness over something. And just as much as I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol, I am powerless over my primal wound. And so if I can submit to that and just accept what's happening and not fight or resist experiencing emotions in a healthy way, things do get easier. These episodes of being just struggling and going through just these painful things, it will resolve. Life gets better. If you feel stuck, I love doing this. I have a journal and I write down a list of things that I've done for the day. And I'm like, well, you can't lie to your journal. So then I make myself do them. Mm. And that has been a way to push through some of the mental paralysis that I think you can have when you're severely traumatized. Also just to stay connected with other people, even if you feel a resistance to it. I know that the adoptee community triggered me at first really badly. I really struggled with that. And then I'm trying to just put myself into situations more where Plus I was the only adoptee I'd ever heard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I didn't want it. I was like, this is all the shit in my head coming out. Like <laughs> if everyone else's mouth. Ah, no. <laughs> and then I wanted to say all the things other people said to me that were toxic to these people. It was just bad at first. So I like yeah. I really had a hard time. But um getting involved and staying connected and talking to people like yourself, it makes yeah. a difference. Yeah. We have to educate the world. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to cover that I didn't ask? Um, No, I just appreciate the conversation. It's helpful to me and it helps me on my journey, like I said, to talk to other adopted people and to connect with new people, which hopefully I will after this comes out. And yeah, just thank you. What a great conversation I had with Emily. And I am so glad to have met her. She is such a great soul. And I want to thank her again for coming on Mind Your Own Karma and helping educate the world about adoption. You know, mental illness is a huge thing in the adoptee community. And so many of us have gone undiagnosed. And it is important to get diagnosed only because it helps you understand you. And you can use that as a superpower. It's really a gift. 
It's part of your essence. It's part of who you are and it's part of what you were put on this planet to do. So seek professional help in testing if you feel that you might have a psychiatric disability. Thank you, Emily, for opening up and being so honest about your multiple neurodivergence. Now, if you don't know Emily and you aren't friends with her on any social media platforms, I have her links in the show notes and you have to check out her art. I can't even explain it. It's so inspiring and hauntingly beautiful. So go find her and check her out and friend her on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, if you are ready to tell your adoption story on Mind Your Own Karma, you can email me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com. If you want to know more about me and the podcast, you can go to my website, mindyourownkarma.com. As always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.